1: I don't know if you would agree with me that uh, if ever there was a time to engage in wrong think, this is that time. But I'm thinking it's it's almost a, a mechanism for survival. Look at the craziness going on around us. Look at the things that we're being told you have to believe this with a straight face. Do not question. Chant in unison with your fellow citizens and, you know, don't, uh, don't question the conventional wisdom. I, I don't think I can do it. And if you're one of those people who is uh, looking for truth or at least looking for a, a legitimate take on what's happening that isn't spun to be, you know, diverse and equitable and inclusive and all of that stuff, yeah, this is the right place. You have definitely found a place where we revel in wrongthink, and at least try to get a better handle on what's going on around us, but more importantly, on what we can be doing to uh, move the needle in the right direction. I've got some great information to share with you today on that very subject. But before we get too far, let me thank the sponsors who make this program possible, including Barelli LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation, TMCPNation.com. All right, where to begin? I know right now the news headlines are being dominated by uh, an apparently... <sighs> I don't know what the right word is. I'm going to say disgruntled, but I don't think that begins to cover it. Uh, A transsexual individual who uh, went into a Christian school, shot three students and uh, killed uh, two adults, I believe, uh, and herself was killed. Maybe, maybe it was six people that she shot. Anyway, it it has been so interesting to see the media take this on and try to spin it as well. You know, it was probably pushed to violence, justified this. You know, this kind of thing. I, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say this because I know people who identify as trans and, and look, not everybody who identifies as trans is, is a monster. So I think we need to be careful about making group judgments based on the actions of a single person. Having said that, though, there is a certain madness that we are expected to not only uh, accept and, and tolerate as normal, but affirm as, oh, yes, that's good. That's very good. It's like that creepy Twilight Zone episode where the kid can basically kill people with his mind. Oh, what you did there, son. That's that's very good. Very good. That's kind of the the corner we're painting ourselves into. When we have to uh, have to treat things that are, that are clearly not based in reality as if, oh no, that's that's as real as it gets. And so when someone twists off and when you have I look, I'm I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, but um it really appears that, that the majority of, of people who have, have uh, glommed on to this militant transsexual movement are dealing with with mental illness. And I mean legit mental illness. I'm not saying that as a pejorative. I'm not trying to put them down. Therefore, we don't have to pay attention to anything. They need help. They don't need affirmation in the same sense that an anorexic doesn't need affirmation. You're right, dear. You could stand to lose a few more pounds. No but uh, now it's, it's the, the rhetoric is just getting so violent it's, and, and being detached from reality and, and violent. I don't know. I could be wrong, but it just seems like a really dangerous combination and maybe not something that, uh, that, that we should take lightly or just shrug off or oh, I'll just ignore it till it goes away. Because somewhere along the line, I'm, I'm kind of getting the message, look, if you'd only affirm us, we wouldn't have to hurt you or your children or whatever the case may be. Now, again, That doesn't mean every person who identifies as trans is, uh, you know, a serial killer or a mass shooter, potentially. But the rhetoric coming from the community is certainly not helping things. And, you know, I I don't know what to say other than um, at some point you got to make a commitment to reality. You can't be cowed into embracing falsehood without some pretty serious consequences, By the way, if you want to read some really great insights on this, anything that Solzhenitsyn wrote while he was languishing in the gulag is is really good material. Because he talks about how despotism, tyranny, rely on falsehood. They force you to believe falsehood. Not just believe it, but to say it. Go ahead, say the words out loud, comrade. Say them out loud. Affirm what, what we are telling you. It's a form of humiliation because it, it flies in the face of reality and it's, it's part of subjugating people. You will say the words that I'm telling you you must say. So I'm less interested in let's, uh, let's figure out who the enemy is today and more interested in, okay, what can you and I do? How can we be a positive influence? How can we be a light in a darkening world or at least a world where reality is, is under threat? I guess the best thing we can do is know who we are and know what we stand for. That's why it's a little bit disturbing when you see stories like this one. Um, The Wall Street Journal apparently commissioned a survey that uh, found an alarmingly low percentage of Americans value patriotism and traditional American values. Now, I actually have a graphic on today's show notes that shows you the results of, of this survey. As reported by Fox News, the Wall Street Journal-NORC poll showed that just 38% of respondents believe in the importance of patriotism. Now, to put that in contrast, that same poll back in 1998, just 25 years ago, 70% of people said patriotism is a value that is very important to them. Kind of makes you wonder, what, uh, what happened? Why did things drop? And if you look from 1998 to 2019... There was a pretty significant drop from 70% down to 61%, about a 9% drop, but from 61% to 38% just since 2019, the last four years. Kind of makes you wonder, why exactly would that happen? Now, commentator Katie Pavlich uh, apparently elaborated on some of the possible reasons for the sharp decline in patriotism, pointing to the American public education system shifting hard to the left, and promoting anti-American ideas like critical race theory, an anti-white concept which claims America is a fundamentally racist nation. By the way, you'll see a lot of apologists, not only in the media but also in politics, who like to maintain this. So with, with people like that, if, you, if you're training young minds, you know, hey, your country is just based in systemic racism and everybody's racist and everybody's bad. Yeah, maybe patriotism would, would take a pretty good hit. Pavlich also blamed the trend on the left's ongoing push for equity, which essentially guarantees equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity, and thus prioritizes the hiring or admission of minorities rather than the people who are most qualified. May not seem like a big deal, but hey, for that transatlantic flight that you're going to take or for the brain surgery that you're going to undergo... Do you want somebody who got there because, well, we were just being inclusive and wanted to make sure we had the right number and color of skin, you know, <laughs> you know, represented here in the operating theater? No. You want the most competent surgeon possible, regardless of skin color. Pavlich says four years ago, people said tolerance was 80%. 80% of people said it was very important to them. Now, it's down 58%. They've been pushing equity as if that's going to make everybody more tolerant. But it doesn't. You know why? Because it involves force. And tolerance, in order to be tolerance, has to be freely chosen. So this Wall Street Journal poll was conducted from March 1st through the 13th with a sample size of 1,019 adults. And Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, I think actually has a really solid take on this. We'll go into this in more detail in the next segment. But he says, look... The numbers aren't really what's, what's surprising here. He says the problem is they're not understanding why patriotism would decrease. In fact, it, it's, it's the analysis of the numbers that, uh, that it's, it's missing something here. He says it's the interpretation rather than just the numbers themselves. So with the Wall Street Journal, you know, conducting this poll, yes, it's very interesting results. But he says first let's focus on this issue of patriotism. The poll doesn't define for the respondents what patriotism is, but just reflects on the word, okay? It means love of country and homeland. Now, it's perhaps true that this has fallen. That's believable since the US in 3 years stopped placing freedom as a first principle. Now, for people who, you know, think that patriotism is uh, do you love your government? Do you support your government? If that's the case, I'd say no, absolutely not. In fact, my government is is, is uh, really challenging uh, my, my decision or my desire to, to, to want to, to remain here. That's how bad they've been, but especially the last three years. So pray tell, what was it that took place in the last three years? Is, is there anything unusual or anything that, uh, I don't know, would have soured people, you know, on, on patriotism? I'll tell you what, we'll come back and explore this in some detail. Again, I've got uh, Jeffrey Tucker's amazing article here. You can check it out in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you haven't subscribed, consider doing so. No obligation, won't cost you anything. I'm not going to spam you. I'll just send you some quality information each and every day I do the program. Back in just a few moments.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So let's talk a little
1: bit about the decline in patriotism. I'm looking at an article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And he's referring to the Wall Street Journal poll, which shows from 1998 to the present, over 25 years, the percentage of Americans who say that patriotism is an important value has crashed from 70% to 38%. Now, the bulk of the fall has happened since 2019. So that, that big decline is really recent. But he also points out it's believable since, in the, since the U.S. in three years stopped placing freedom as a first principle. In fact, he says there's a growing cultural movement extending from academia to the mainstream that encourages loathing of American history and its achievements. No founding father is safe from being called the worst possible names. Hatred of this country has risen to an expect to be an expected norm. But he says the problem goes even deeper. When you are locked in your home, your business is closed, your church is shut, your neighbors are screaming at you to mask up, then the doctors come at you with shots you don't want, and you're prevented from leaving the country to anywhere but Mexico, and the president calls the unvaccinated enemies of the people, Yeah, you can imagine that affections for the homeland are going to decline. But he says there's another important pillar of patriotism. It's all about trust in the civic institutions of the country. Now, this would include schools, courts, politics, all the institutions of government at all levels. Civic trust in these are surely at rock bottom. Why? Well, think about it. The courts didn't protect us. The schools shut, particularly the public ones, which are supposed to be the crowning achievement of progressive ideology. Even our doctors turned on us. And let's say that we consider the media to be part of civic culture. It has been that way at least since FDR's fireside chats. It's always been the mouthpiece for what we're supposed to be thinking about as a people. But the media, too, turned on regular people for three years, calling our parties super-spreader events, jeering pastors who held worship services, demonizing live concerts, and screaming at everyone to stay home and stay glued to the tube. Yes, he says, such evil antics tend to lessen public respect for all the institutions involved, especially when objections to these policies were censored by all the institutions we were supposed to trust with our data and friend networks. But they turned out to be wholly owned, too. All the while, public support for patriotism was abused to deny fundamental rights and liberties. Patriotism was supposed to mean staying home and staying safe, masking up, social distancing, and complying with every random edict, no matter how ridiculous, and finally, getting jabbed once, twice, three times, and more, forever, despite the lack of medical vulnerability for vast swaths of the public. Now, there's a bitter truth behind what he's saying here, and it is, the Constitution became a dead letter for a time. It still is, as visitors from other countries cannot even enter our borders, lest they too submit to the shots made and distributed by companies that provide half the budget of the agencies requiring everyone to comply. And this was all supposed to be necessary because of what was obviously a seasonal respiratory infection, a fact we knew at least a month before the lockdowns began. We could read about it in all mainstream venues. Don't panic, they said. Just trust your doctor. But with lockdowns, they took away from the doctor the liberty of treating patients with therapeutics known to be effective against exactly this sort of virus. Instead, we were expected to put all normal life on hold and wait for the magic antidote that was supposedly on the way. When it didn't arrive until after the hated president was unseated, it turned out to be to not be an antidote at all. At best, it was a temporary palliative against severe outcomes. It certainly did not stop infection or spread. All that happened anyway, which makes the point that the huge sacrifices made in the name of patriotism were all for naught. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says we should in no way be surprised that the public these days is not feeling very patriotic. And yes, this is very sad in many ways. But it's also what happens when our patriotism is hijacked by the state and industry to shatter our hopes and dreams. Now, we tend to learn from our errors, so when the pollsters come around and ask if we're feeling patriotic, it's hardly unusual that people would respond, not really. And we could say the same thing about other the other poll result. The importance of religion has fallen from 62% in 1998 to 39% in 2022. Again, the bulk of the crash happened after 2019. No question that the nation was already trending secular. But what are we to think when two successive seasons of Easter and Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate were canceled by the civic elites with full cooperation from the mainstream of religious leaders? That's a hard one, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a bitter truth. The whole realm of religion, says Jeffrey Tucker, is to reach outside the mundane world of civic culture into the realm of the transcendent in order to see and live by truth. But when transcendent concerns are replaced by fear and secular compliance, the religion loses credibility. If you want to find people who still believe, you can in groups that are truly serious about faith. The Hasidim, the Amish, traditional Catholics, and Mormons, but in mainline denominations, not so much. Like media, tech, and government, they turned out to be captured too. By the way, I know a lot of Mormons who would actually say... They have deep concerns about, uh, about the way that uh, their own church responded. But in the final results of the poll, the importance of having children went from 59% to 39%. The importance of community involvement peaked at 62% at the height of the lockdowns to fall to an astounding 27%. And again, the culprit here seems pretty obvious. It was the pandemic response. All the policies were structured to shatter human relationships. People are nothing but disease vectors. Stay away from everyone. Don't become a super spreader by daring to hang around others. Be alone. Be lonely. That's the only proper way. Finally, he says, among the only things that are rising are concern for the importance of money. That's kind of an interesting one. I guess the fact that we all need and use money... Would would make it very relevant to us, but also he says real income has been declining for the better part of two years and inflation is gutting our standards of living. Once again, pandemic policies are the culprit. They spent trillions and the money printers matched that spending nearly dollar for dollar watering down the value of a previously reliable currency. So his point is. The trouble with the survey isn't the numbers, it's the interpretation this is being seen or portrayed as some weird fog of nihilism and greed that has mysteriously slipped over the population as if it were an entirely organic trend over which no one has any control. But Jeffrey Tucker says that's wrong. There is a definite cause, and it all traces to the same egregious policies without precedent. We do not have the honesty. We still do not have honesty about what happened. He's right. And until we get it, we cannot, we cannot repair the grave damage to the culture or the national soul. So Jeffrey Tucker says we are living in crisis times, but that crisis has an identifiable cause and hence solution. And until we can speak freely about it, the situation can only get worse. So this is one of the reasons why you know, people like me and others will not let this issue rest. This is why we say we need accountability on the part of those people, whether elected or just some bureaucratic functionary out there, you know, uh, locking down churches, locking down businesses, trying to punish people and fine them for daring to live their lives in the face of those lockdown orders. It's sad how many people still maintain and and of course, uh, mainstream media still maintains, well, it was necessary. They were just trying to protect us. And if mistakes were made, they were honest mistakes. No, they weren't. There were plenty of dissenting voices who spoke up and who warned that this was a very dangerous path to go down. So why weren't those voices heeded? Well, because there was power at stake, plain and simple. And the people who wanted that power were willing to do anything, including use fear and doubt and uncertainty to try to manipulate people into doing their bidding. And they succeeded, I think, beyond their wildest dreams. But there were some of us, the problem children, who did not go along and will not go along and are doing our best to persuade others to shift their allegiance.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Man, I, I hope I'm not doing too much complaining today. I, I feel like I'm on a bit of a tear, but there's just so much going on, and, and I'm concerned about this. I the, the stuff that I'm sharing I think is noteworthy, but I don't want it to be, you know, like, okay, here's another thing for you to fear, or another thing to cause dread. We all get our daily dread supplement in various ways. I'd really rather uh, I'd rather deal in something that's that's a little more hopeful. So I'm happy to share this commentary here from Ryan McMackin, rather, uh, who reminds us that if you want to fight the states, you've got to build non-state institutions. So if you feel the call to stand up for freedom, if you have felt like you know what, the right thing to do is to push back against tyranny at every level, but sometimes you find yourself wondering, how exactly do I do that? right? Because you're going to be called names. You're going to be told that you're an extremist. You're going to be told that what you're doing should be criminal. That's, just, that's the nature of the people in power. They want that control, and they're not going to give it up easy. Well, here's what Ryan McMakin says. He says, throughout history, liberalism, the ideology today called classical liberalism or libertarianism, has suffered from the impression that it is primarily against things. Now, that's not entirely wrong. Historically, liberalism coalesced as a recognizable and coherent ideology in opposition largely to mercantilism and absolutism throughout Western Europe. Over time, this opposition extended to socialism, protectionism, imperialism, aggressive warfare, and slavery as well. So, in this regard, liberals have for centuries fought against a wide array of moral and economic evils, that spread poverty injustice and mi- and misery now he says being against things however has never been sufficient in itself And liberals have never been contented with themselves with being have never contented themselves rather with being so mcmackin says of course uh, liberalism has long as long been closely associated with so-called bourgeois values private property local self-determination and in spite of claims of the contrary religious institutions. Today, however, these institutions that have long undergirded liberalism and the free society are in an advanced state of decay. These are the institutions that have made society and civic life possible without state control. But he says the decline of these institutions didn't happen by accident. The power of the modern state is the result of long wars by the state against independent churches, against family ties, and against local self-determination and self-government. The state has never suffered rivals, so any organization that competes for the hearts and minds of the population must be made impotent. So we find that the challenge at hand is more than simply opposing the state. Rather, it's necessary to build up, reinforce, and sustain institutions that can offer alternatives to the state in terms of organizing and supporting human society. He says, without these institutions, liberalism's job is much more difficult or even impossible. As libertarian historian Ralph Rako notes, liberals make a key distinction between the state and society. Society is simply those institutions that are not the state. Or as David Gordon puts it, liberals believe that the main institutions of society can function in entire independence of the state. Now the idea that the institutions of society can function without a state is an established historical fact. Since the beginnings of human civilization, even in the absence of states... People have built up institutions and relationships designed to provide order, security, and social safety nets. As described by historian Paul Friedman, many societies have been held together by something other than government in the sense that we understand it. Rather, they can be held together with informal social networks and ties. These include kinship, family, private, vengeance, and even religion. These institutions have also been essential in the Western ideal of dispersing political power among a variety of organizations rather than concentrating it in a single central authority. According to Reiko, the Western struggle for freedom and political independence is historically characterized by these institutions' fight for their own separate legal rights. So, for instance, princes all often found their hands tied by the charters of rights, Magna Carta, for instance, which they were forced to grant their subjects. In the end, even with the relatively small states of Europe, power was dispersed among estates, orders, chartered towns, religious communities, corps, universities, etc., each with its own guaranteed liberties. He says, not surprisingly, the rise of the modern territorial state is closely connected to the state's struggle against these institutions. As historian of the state Martin Van Creveld has shown, in order to consolidate power, the state first had to gravely weaken the churches, the nobility, and the towns. After all, these organizations competed with the state. They often provided economic safety nets of their own and civil order through courts and local militias. They created a sense of community and social purpose apart from the idea of the nation-state. They also provided key economic services, as in the case of the Hanseatic League, which offered safe trade routes and arbitration services for merchants. These polycentric political systems were obstacles to the state's consolidation of power. And as Murray Rothbard has noted, the process of abolishing non-state institutions accelerated during the early modern period. So by the 16th century in France, the process was in full swing, The French state systematically tore down the legal rights of all corporations or organizations, which in the Middle Ages had stood between the individual and the state. There were no longer any intermediary or feudal authorities. The king was absolute over these intermediaries. This process was necessary to end pockets of independence and potential resistance to the state. In earlier times the state had to buy had to gain buy-in rather from a variety of organizations that could offer real existence or real resistance rather to its rule. As Alex de Tocqueville noted in the nineteenth century, not a hundred years ago, among the greater part of the European nations, numerous private persons and corporations were sufficiently independent to administer justice, to raise and maintain troops, to levy taxes, and frequently even to make or interpret the law. Yet even after their medieval legal independence was abolished, churches, fraternal organizations, and extended family networks continued to provide poverty relief and to be institutions critical to local solidarity and religious and rather regional regional independence. Moreover, extended family enterprises made up a separate locus of power outside the state, and many of these families self-consciously sought to remain economically independent. Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm's view of the bourgeois family is not exactly complimentary, but he nonetheless captures some of the central role of the family in the 19th century. The family was not merely the basic social unit of bourgeois society, but its basic unit of property and business enterprise. But even this informal, institutional competition with the state couldn't be tolerated. In the 19th century, the state's opposition to independent institutions was taken to the next level with the welfare state. And this came first in Germany, where the welfare state was introduced by conservative nationalist Otto von Bismarck. Now, Ralph Rako contends the welfare state was a deliberate effort by Bismarck to end the population's financial independence from the state. Antony Mueller concludes the welfare state established a system of mutual obligation between the state and its citizens. In subsequent decades, regimes throughout Western Europe and North America followed Bismarck's lead. And this further solidified the idea that the state was to enjoy a direct relationship with individuals unimpeded by local, cultural, or religious institutional obstacles. By the way, just as kind of an interesting aside, with the ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913, that's where you got your your direct relationship with the federal government. Prior to that time, you were not held accountable by the federal government for anything. The only time you would encounter it is going to the post office, maybe if a census worker came by, but it was with the passage of the income tax amendment that suddenly every citizen had a personal accountability to the state. Kind of funny how that worked out, right? It's not getting better either. So we find ourselves in the twilight of non-state institutions. Ryan McMacken says, The effort to neutralize non-state institutions has been enormously successful. Institutional obstacles to state power are shadows of, them, of their former selves. Long gone are the independent communes, the free towns, the local militias, and the independent monasteries and churches. In fact, in more recent history, even local parishes, community churches, and fraternal organizations have become increasingly invisible religious observance is in deep decline. Church organizations such as schools and parishes are consequently much reduced. Families are in decline as well. Both marriage rates and fertility are falling, and divorce is widespread, meaning that fewer familial bonds are for the long term. That's kind of a scary thought. Even people calling themselves conservative find this to be the case. So it's easy to find many who are divorced, cohabitating, living apart from their own young children, and distant from extended relations. We're going to come back to Ryan McMakin's uh, article here in just a few moments. If you want to check this out in detail, you will find a link in my show notes at the Brian Hyde
0: show.com. Stay close. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you this excellent
1: article from Ryan McMakin, who is uh, talking about, if you want to fight the state, you've got to build non-state institutions. Why? Well, the most enduring economic and institutional relationship that many people have is with their national government. The vast majority of taxes are paid to central governments. Most health care and pension benefits come from national governments. States Not churches now financially dominate universities, hospital, even poverty relief. Now that's all to the advantage of the state, because it means fewer individuals can rely on immediate or extended family members for economic or social security. It means fewer allegiances to any community, except the vaguely defined and essentially imaginary national community. Weakened community organizations mean less private charity, fewer enduring social bonds. Local civic organizations have been co-opted by the central government, which employs its vast tax-funded resources to control both charitable organizations and local governments. So, individuals aren't enough, though. And he says this because, you know, in response to all this, some people would say, "Wow, well, we don't need these organizations and institutions, just rugged individualists. And it's a great idea, but there's no evidence of this actually working as a counterweight to state power. He says historically, liberals have long understood that opposition to state power cannot be effective if based merely on opposition from diffuse individuals who share no pre-existing practical religious, familial, or economic interests and feelings of common cause. Rather, resistance to the state has tended to be centered around some cultural, religious, linguistic, or local institutional loyalty. Historically, this often took the form of local networks of families and their allies. Now, Tocqueville noted that these groups provided a ready nexus around which to organize opposition to government abuses. He wrote, as long as family feeling was kept alive, the antagonist of oppression was never alone. He looked around him, he looked about him rather, and found his clients, his hereditary friends and his kinfolk. If this support was was wanting, he was sustained by his ancestors and animated by his posterity. So without these or similar institutions, Tocqueville concluded, political opposition to the state becomes ineffective. Specifically without institutions through which to practically build resistance to state power, even anti-regime ideology has no way of being brought into practice. Tocqueville said, what strength can even public opinion have retained? Or no 20, When no 20 persons are con- connected by a common tie... When not a man, nor a family, nor a chartered corporation, nor class, nor free institution has the power of representing that opinion. And when every citizen, being equally weak, equally poor, and equally dependent, has only his own personal impotence to oppose the organized force of the government." End so the Franco-Swiss liberal Benjamin Constant came to similar conclusions noting that local social institutions often provide a cultural counterbalance to state power through solidarity and organization. Constant writes, "...the interest and memories which are born of local customs contain a germ of resistance which authority suffers only with regret and which it hastens to eradicate. With individuals it has way more easily, it has its way more easily. It rolls its enormous weight over them effortlessly, as over sand." Which brings us to the question: Okay, what's to be done? Well, here's the conclusion Ryan McMakin has. He says, "Thus, if we are to meaningfully oppose state power, it is necessary to encourage, grow, and sustain institutions and organization over which states cannot so easily roll their enormous weight." In other words, when people support a local parish, when people raise a family, build a business, create mutual aid organizations or foster local civic independence. They are doing work that is absolutely critical to fighting state power. And while it's always good to speak ill of state power and to oppose its countless violent and impoverishing grifts, this is not enough. We must also speak well of non-state institutions and strengthen them in our daily work and lives. Without these institutions of kinship, religion, markets, and towns, non-state society will be irrelevant. He says, mere opposition to the state, without viable private or local alternatives, will never be sufficient. People want services like education and help for widows, orphans, and the disabled. They want safety, a sense of community, and solidarity with others. These benefits of society do not require states, but they do require institutions. Yet these institutions in our own time are so reduced as to offer little alternatives to the state. Kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? If you're one of those people who resonates with the idea, well, then I'm going to get busy building what comes next. That is, uh, that's where it's going to happen. (laughs) It's, It's building whatever comes next. And by the way, when it comes to institutions, maybe you've heard me talk about this. The major institutions that keep a society healthy include... Not just government. That's just the most prominent one. That's the one we're trained to see as, as, you know, the solution to everything. But it also includes family. Now talk about an institution where you have some influence. That's, that's one place to start. Community is another. Church or clergy is another. Media is an institution. Business is an institution. Academia is an institution think for a moment about how many of these institutions have been captured or co-opted by the state. I know it's, it's a surprising number, right? So I guess uh, we need to look at, uh, at getting those institutions out from under state control. And how to do that? Well, I'm not the guy to tell you because I think it may be different for each one of us. I think we each have, you know, different ways to contribute and to make things happen. But I absolutely agree with Ryan McMakin that uh, if you want to fight the state, you've got to build non-state institutions. That would start probably where you're standing. How well do you know your neighbors? How well do you know the, the members of your church community? You don't have to reinvent the wheel, necessarily. You just have to be willing to look around you and see the resources that are available and the places where you can say, No thanks, government. I don't need what you're offering me. By the way, I don't want to sound like a troublemaker, but there were a few things more satisfying than being able to tell a bureaucrat that's okay. I don't really need what you're trying to offer me. I had a bit of a run-in with, um, oh, what was it? Workman's comp. I think it was workman's comp. Um, here this was this was several years ago in Utah. Contacted by, you know, a a, a guy who I'm sure was just trying to do, you know, good. But uh, because I was an independent contractor and I was writing columns for uh, a Southern Utah news organization, I'd never even been in their office, never so much as set foot in their office. But uh, they wanted to make sure the Department of, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry, the Office of Workmen's Comp had to make sure that, you know, I didn't qualify as an employee. And, you know, so they wanted me to pay 50 bucks for them to look into the matter and tell them whether or not I needed to sign up for a waiver, that uh, that would uh, either you know get me out of their regulation or put me under their regulation and i finally just asked the guy can you tell me categorically right now yes or no do i need to be under under this program and his answer was well i need you to pay 50 bucks so we can look into it and find out and i'm like well there's your answer right there if you don't know if you can't categorically tell me that yes I qualify and I'm supposed to be under, you know, the the um, auspices or under the, the authority of this particular program, then I'm going to assume that I'm not. And I'm not going to pay you 50 bucks just so you can tell me one way or the other. Ooh, he did not like that. But it felt really good to be able to say, no, thank you. What you're offering is not something that I need. And, you know, he came back with, well, now, you know, of course, if we decide that you are, in fact, under this, you know, this, uh, this could come back to uh, to your employer or the the people that you're contracting for to, uh, you know, they, they could be fined. And they'll probably have to take that out of your pay. To which my response was, hey, I'm paid a couple hundred bucks a month to write a weekly column. Seriously. I'd walk away from the job before I would pay you a dime, you know, to 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 tell me whether or not uh, i need to be underneath your authority now you may think brian you're just pretty anti-authoritarian aren't you you're just a troublemaker and maybe i am i have to allow for that possibility maybe maybe i am just a troublemaker and and uh, that was wrong of me to do so but it just seemed so clear that uh, this just this was this was the state looking for a reason or some justification to assert you know authority over my life and expecting me to come to it asking, by the way, um do I need your permission to to do this? Do I need your permission to continue to earn, you know, money by doing this? I don't want to play that game. If it, if it's not clearly the law, then I'm going to assume that I am free to continue doing what I'm doing. I know. Just wait till the wrong bureaucrat catches, you know, catches my eye and decides to make an example of me. But I'm I'm pretty certain that We're far beyond the point where you can stand up for your rights without offending somebody. Just, you know, try to be gentle about it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.